I love training. I love educating and furthering and expanding people's repertoires of their knowledge. And I feel like we, we provide a service to the industry. We provide things that people may not be able to find elsewhere. Instruction-specific education that helps people expand their business and giving them pathways to attain a license. You give a man a fish, you only eat today. You teach a man a fish, and he'll eat for a lifetime. So I love that idea, and I love helping people kind of achieve their dreams. Welcome to episode 115 of the AFT Construction Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Levitt. And in this episode, I speak with Rachel Doty of the Contractor Training Center. And Rachel is the director of course development there, and she is also a contractor herself. She's the VP of Blevins Construction. And I was really excited to have Rachel on. She is um, very versed as far as construction, you know, starting a business. What does it take to understand licensing in your state? What does it mean when a contractor says licensed, bonded, and insured? What does the bonding part mean? You know, what are the insurance requirements that you should have and you should require of your subcontractors? How do you write the contracts? Where do you start? You know, especially when it gets down into lien waivers and billing. And so this is something that she offers. Her course there at the Contractor Training Center, they have the documentation, they have the paperwork, they help you get started in the construction world. And they even have a code right now for everyone listening, AFT-15. So you go in to the website that's here in the show notes, type in AFT-15, they will give you a 15% discount on their course, on their brochures, on all their products. So I definitely recommend checking them out. You're going to love this episode. Rachel has a wealth of knowledge. So without further ado, let's get started. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. And today we have Rachel Doty with us. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. So uh, great to be here with you today. Yeah, very excited to have you on. And uh, Rachel is the Director of Course Development at the Contractor Training Center, uh, which we're going to dive into because there's a lot of technical things that you're assisting with us contractors. Um, but maybe we start here. I mean, Rachel, you're super involved in the industry and the business. And so what issues, trends are you seeing face the industry right now? Right now, a lot of contractors are talking about material shortages and delays in sourcing and delivering materials. Um, and also labor shortages. I mean, with everything going on with um, unemployment and trying to find good help, it's, 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 Troublesome for a lot of guys to try to get good help uh, that want to work, that want to show up and, you know, have everything kind of have some experience. So um, it's a little bit of a, a problem, you know, people trying to build homes and renovate them because it's hard to keep up with demand. There's so much demand right now, um, but not as much in terms of supply and labor. Yeah. And that's, I, I, I'm trying to get my hands around that. I, you know, I've been building now for, as a professional outside of college for 16 years, I've been involved in the industry my whole life. I can't ever recall a time such as this where we're trying to figure out supply chain. You know, as much as you think, okay, we know there's an issue, let's order in advance. It still doesn't matter. Like we have projects that we're ordering stuff eight months in advance and it's still not coming in and it's still being pushed. And, you know, vendors and suppliers can't even, they can't provide any assurity, any timelines that are accurate. And, you know, I, for the first time I've had some conversation with clients, like I just, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. We're pushing on this. Hopefully it'll be done. You know, we had a client just move in and typically the house is a hundred percent done. It's toothbrush ready. As we say, you know, furniture, everything, they bring their toothbrush, maybe their wardrobe and they're good. And you know, it's a, it's a working house. We still have a lot of elements and it's just, it, it, it's something unique that we've never dealt with before. Yeah. It's definitely challenging trying to adapt, you know, and, and having to adapt quickly where you've never had these issues before and 
and you generally have a timeline of how long something's going to take, but then, well, you just don't know if you're going to get the materials. <laughs> you, so, you just don't know if they're going to come through. <laughs> yeah. And so what do you recommend? I mean, I, you know, in commercial, when it, you know, it's very common in commercial construction, especially in the initial contract and the project that when you're doing commercial, whether it be a restaurant, whether it be a hotel, right? There is strict guidelines of schedule because liquidated damages, right? If the business mm -hmm. isn't open, there's delay costs. I know like a Walmart, every day late, you're charged a substantial amount because they have their trucks ready and route to, go, to supply you know, all, the, all the product in the Walmart. Um, and, and, but whereas in residential, we don't really have liquidated damages, but what are you seeing happen with contractors right now in regard to litigation, right? And issues they may be having legally, whether it be with delays or price increases or in their contract, not having escalation clauses. Yes, that's a big thing where you don't have um, any clause that protects you for the material increase or for, for instance, if you, there was a code change, you know, the increased cost of compliance. Um, so it's, it's trouble somewhere. I mean, a lot of contractors, I've seen a lot of the big builders, they're just giving, here's a $20,000 price increase because our cost of supply is going up. If you want to keep the house and keep it under contract, here's your change order, sign it. If not, we'll sell it to somebody else. And, and they're, people are either paying up or they're walking away. And it, it, right now it's the way the market is, they're not walking away. So that's beneficial on, on behalf of the contractors that there's, there's such a demand that they can kind of dictate that. But it's, you know, if you're already in contract with somebody and you're already delayed and already in in that getting into that liquidated damages sort of realm um i mean you could be in breach technically it could be considered breach especially if you have a, a dedicated time frame of delay so i mean there are obviously extenuating circumstances an attorney would would come in on your behalf and say that was just there was no possible feasible way to complete it so it may take experts saying you know this is just the market demand right now it's this is this is unprecedented so I think that the way it'll play out, I'm sure there will be people that try to get out, um, especially if there's a bubble that bursts here soon and then everyone can't afford the interest rate hikes on things. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, right now we're not seeing it as much. People are just, they want the house, they'll pay it. Yeah, it's interesting. So outside of, you know, the escalation clause and outside of price increases that a lot of us are dealing with, you know, and customers, and it's not just... You know, unique to us in construction, the funny thing about the economy right now is, you know, we have clients and we have peers that own restaurants, right? And their restaurants are half full and they're like, hey, this isn't because of COVID. We're not separating people. It's because we don't have any staff. We don't have, you know, the amount of produce and the amount of product we need, right, to serve. And so we can only have a limited amount of people because we only have those many servers and then, you know, the the kitchen staff. And so it's really created limitation. And I think most people that are fairly reasonable, that are at least someone in tune with the economy, at least client-wise, they, they hopefully understand that this isn't unique to just us contractors and our um, inability to perform, if you will. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But hopefully it doesn't fall back on, because it's happening to everyone. It's broad-based. It's not like one contractor's cranking work out and everyone else is just slacking. So, I mean. Right. So what, you know, with all your experience, especially working with contractors, I mean, what is the most common or what are some of the other litigation issues that we should be aware of? You know, if we're starting a business for the first time, working with certain clientele, whether it be remodels or new builds, 
you know, where do most contractors have a challenge just looking at the legal aspect of their business? A lot of times people, what we've been, what I've seen over the, you know, over recent years would be mostly construction defects um, where there's stucco issues or water intrusion, failures on, on exterior fenestration, you know, exterior envelope assemblies. There's been a lot on that. But as far as contracts, your, your contract disputes, um, mostly on the liens, the lien side of things, not filing things properly, not paying off the subs properly, uh, making sure that all of your releases are in place so there's no, no liens on the homes. There's a lot of foreclosure, lien foreclosure issues where, um, you know, you get into, that's something to always consider, but just making sure that that's taken care of. Um, but on the other side of things, construction accidents. You know, you have a lot of construction safety issues, uh, whether it's somebody falling off of a ladder or somebody stepping on something, a homeowner stepping on a nail after a roof has been done, you, you didn't get all the, the roofing nails up. So there's always that inherent uh, negligence or the inherent uh, wrongful death. I mean, God forbid someone's diabetic and steps on a nail, you know, then it's a, a whole calamity of issues. But uh, you know, so it's those things, the safety issues, the the lien filings, and then just proper workmanship, following the code, and, and sometimes exceeding the code is the best way to avoid some of those things, because even if you're just following the code to the basic minimum, you can still have issues with, with stucco and fenestration assemblies, because, you know, depending on the climate. I love that you point out those three things. I want to touch upon all three of those because a lot of times I'm asked, you know, what keeps me up at night? And I'm like, it's pretty much everything. I mean, as a contractor, there's so much risk in everything we do. And, you know, we have, we're, we're exposed throughout the entire build. And, you know, you think about it, there, there's a podcast I was listening to and Rusty from Beach and Barn, he made a great analogy. It's the first time I'd heard this, you know, and he said, you know, when you're in manufacturing, you know, whether you're buying a vehicle, whether you're buying clothing, apparel, whatever it may be, you know, that, that's behind closed doors. And yes, there's OSHA and there's regulations on the floor, right, for everybody, but you're in an enclosed area. And, you know, so for someone like me that's maybe buying a shirt or a car, you know, I'm not going to see how it's made, right? I'm not in the factory behind the scenes seeing everything put together. What's unique about construction is now you put in the manufacturing facility right for everybody to look at and walk through. So clients, if it's a remodel, you're building the manufacturing facility right there in front of them, right? In their houses, they're living there. Or if you're doing a new build and clients are coming by every day and now trades. And so you think of that exposure, that's one thing to train your immediate staff or those that are you know close. But as you get farther down the, the, the chain link there, you know, to everyone that's touching and delivering and clients walking through, I mean, the exposure is exponential. And it's a really good point you make about just you know, the construction safety because it impacts so many outside of us, even our immediate training that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, you, you, ladders, your top four ladders, you know, unprotected surfaces and edges. Um, Taking a pool shop. and maybe not having it safed off, you know, any safety yep. netting or anything. Trenching and shoring. Yep. I mean, those are all huge things. And a lot of trades deal with that, you know. I mean, electricians will deal with it. Plumbers will deal with it. Pool guys will deal with it. So there's just lots of things. And as you work <laughs> with... Con yeah, and as you work with contractors, as you're consulting around the country, I mean, lien waivers are really important. I, I look at this in Phoenix. Phoenix is a little bit more of a regulated market as far as, you know, for us, a lot of times we're working with um, a bank or uh, even the clients we're working with are very savvy. And so for us, you know, we're doing 
you know, unconditional and, and conditional lien waivers, right? And so we're following a lien, um, a pre-construction lien at the beginning of the project. And then every pay application, we're turning in all liens. And so this is very documented and common. Is that common throughout the country? Are there different markets that don't require that? You know, where's the struggle there with some of the contractors that may not fully grasp the importance of understanding their rights to file a pre-construction lien, as well as making sure that they have lien releases as they're paying their subs and suppliers throughout the course of the project? So each state's different when it comes to lien law. They all have a basic premise of, of that. Some are more lax than others, but most still require, where, where you call it one, you call it, I guess, notice of a construction lien perhaps in yep. Arizona. Yeah. Uh, in, in Florida, it's called a notice to owner. In uh, Virginia, they call it a memorandum of lien. So there's a lot of different terminology when it comes to that. And each state is different and intrinsically different on the timeframes. You know, we have, uh, you know, prior to the job, 60 days prior to, you know, after the completion of the work. Others, it's 45 days. Others, it's 90 days. So knowing those time frames and knowing what the terms are called, you know, when they call it a partial lien waiver or it's a partial release or, you know, they call it, you know, some other combination of names. Each state's different, and especially if you're a multi-state contractor and you're working in different states, having to know the differences between that is just crucial because you could be leaving money on the table or, or not even being able to recover any of those things. You know, you, you've completely lost all of your, your lien rights and waived your lien rights just by a lack of filing a notice to owner in some states, like per, barred from future recovery. So. It's, it's super important to have somebody in the office that knows those things. Maybe if it's not the contractor, maybe the project manager, maybe, maybe someone in, in the office staff that handles you know, payments to know when those, all the payments have been received, to check against materials that have been ordered, to make sure that the materials have been um, separately you know, signed off, if that's the case. Sometimes you have to have material sign off separate from labor sign off. So that's huge to be able to have someone know those things and in between. Uh, states especially is important. I'm glad you share that because I mean, what I, I think most builders don't realize, especially when they're starting out, I know in Arizona, for example, you know, in, when you're doing commercial construction, uh, you know, the trade partners can follow mechanically against the vendor or against the client, you know, the GC can, you know, residential is a little unique when you're doing residential. What, what's tough for the trade partners, they don't have a lot of lien rights in Arizona, right? To follow against the client, they can against the GC only if the GC has filed a, pre you know, a, um, a pre-construction lien, right? To notify the state, hey, we're doing this work. Here's the contract amount. And so if we as the GC and residential, if we're not filing you know, that notice right, to the state and everybody, if the client doesn't pay us, come into the project, we didn't file that, we're out of luck. I mean, we have no right to lien the house because we didn't notify the client that we, you know, we're registering the project, if you will. And so, and the filing requirements with with where they have to file it, you know, the clerk right. Court and then, and as you mentioned, you have a certain timeline. I believe, you know, I'm on the podcast, but I believe it's six months. I'm pretty sure that when we're, you know, if we haven't been paid, that we have within six months to file a lien. If that's the case, by the end of the project, you know, if we haven't been paid and and work mm -hmm. is complete, substantial, complete, um, per the contract, and you know, as long as we're following our aspect, right, our our side of the contract, and making sure that's all laid out. Um, and, and what's really important, and you alluded to this earlier, especially when you start thinking about insurance and liability and um, getting into the you know, defective product or especially with the envelope, which is really difficult because you know, a lot of us do work with engineers you know, and architects that are qualified. Sometimes you may work with a draftsman and so you don't know the, 
the qualification of either the draftsman or the professionals, consultants that they're hiring. And so these details become crucial because if we're installing details that are incorrect, you know, and, and whether it be with the foundation and the soils report or whether it be with the envelope and, you know, water that enters the building, uh, you know, down the road, it can create some major aspects for us and, and issues as the builder. Definitely. And, and so how do you, like when you're working, Rachel, when you're consulting a contractor around the country, you know, and, and you're trying to walk them through these three items, whether it's defective construction, whether it's, um, you know, lien waivers, whether it's uh, you know, construction safety, you know, what do you recommend? Where do they start? Because every state's so different. How are you up to speed? How do you, do you, you know, where do you start that process? Well, it depends on the code for the state. So that's the first thing. I mean, you, you, in most states, they use the international code. Some states have their own state modified version. So knowing what the code is and explaining to them how to understand the code, how to read the code in context with their project is, is first. Second, on the, on the lien law issue, each state has their own lien statutes and lien rules. So you just locate those statutes, you locate those rules, you, you can explain to these people how, you know, explain to the contractors how these things work within their state. And wh- usually most of the time, once we show them and we explain to them where these are located, they, they, you know, you teach a man to fish. So we, te- we taught him how to fish. Now he can read the, the code and the statutes and he can kind of interpret it. Some need a little bit more or they read into it a lot and they really want to know why it says this and why it's so prescriptive in nature uh, or what, how we meet this performance requirement. So, uh, you know, you kind of get into some people that, you know, are, are of the detail-oriented variety that like to make sure that they are dotting their I's and crossing their T's. So you have those you know, that you have to explain the exceptions and explain why they're exceptions and in which cases they would be exceptions and how footnotes work. Well, it's interesting. So, so when you're consulting and you're working through that, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're helping them understand where to find the statutes and what's, you know, uh, the legalities of the area they're working in. But how often do you run into a contractor that's, that's not working with a contract, whether it's a, a owner prime contract or a subcontractor contract, right? How often are you running into that? Because I know just from experience, you know, some contractors have a contract for everything and some are a little bit more lax, lackadaisical when it comes to the contracting side. So some states require written contracts if you're dealing with residential property renovations over a certain dollar amount, if it's over $50 or over $2,500. But um, there are some trades where it's, it's not structural in nature or it doesn't require a contract. And then, th- then it's up to workmanlike standards. So what is workmanlike standards? What would, what would the standard contractor do in the commencement of a quality project? So in Arizona, specifically, you have written workmanlike standards that you have to follow. Which, what's an acceptable tolerance? What's the, the general practice and what's, what's not an allowed practice? So uh, Arizona is very specific in nature in, in that they say what is allowed and what's not. If you have, uh, you know, a difference in your threshold height at your doorway that's more than a quarter of an inch, for instance, I don't know, I'm just off the top right. of the head, but yeah. uh, then then that's an acceptable tolerance, but it's more more than a quarter of an inch, then it's a defect. So that, that I mean, that would be like an attorney's like gold mine. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's specific and it says what the workmanlike standards are, but in other states it's very vague. So you, you have to use industry practice, industry standards. Sometimes there's books and recommendations for, for exams that you have to 
you know, that you have to practice those books and understand how it's written in those books, and that can be considered an industry reference or an industry standard. Although maybe it's not a code-required standard or a code-required publication, it's just a suggested, you know, recommendation of how you should to, uh, install something like that. So that would be like an example of, of just how they would, a contractor who doesn't have necessarily a buy-the-book contract that has to follow the code, letter to the law, there's not plans and specifications that they have to follow from the architect, um, you know, how they would just go about creating quality work while still avoiding that kind of exposure, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I do know that in Arizona, which is a little unique, as you mentioned, it is, we have what's called the ROC, the Registrar of Contractors. And, you know, when you get licensed, you have to take the exam, you know, pass, and then you're on the website and you have a license number and everything, you know, we pay the registrar, right, to be registered with them. And then, of course, if there's a dispute or there's, uh, you know, a, a, a craftsmanship issue, whatever it may be, defective work, as you mentioned, right, then the client can file a claim with the ROC. They have an inspector that comes out, you know, almost, uh, you, you know, working between the two parties to look at it and say, yeah, this is within tolerance. It's not within tolerance. It's a correction. And and so there there is that correct method, if you will. Um, ideally, you know, hopefully you don't have to get lawyers involved that you can, you know, resolve these items peace, peacefully because that's always a good thing to, um, to not have to pay the lawyers all the money, right? And, and work through that. But um, I can imagine that's really difficult, especially when you're working in other states, though, for contractors, when it's a little bit more open-ended and there's a little bit more, you know, maybe there's not protection for the client. I feel like in Arizona that the client does have a lot of protection because they can go to the ROC and they have someone behind them to make sure that the contractor is being held up to the standard they should be. Yes, definitely. And and that they're, you know, a contractor has to include that language that they, they have the understanding that they can collect on that in their contract. So that's another thing too, that, uh, another point to bring up, there's a lot of required contract provisions that have to be in the contract when you do have a written contract. Notice for a recovery fund, a transaction recovery fund, for example, um, lien law notices. So, you know, if you, and a contractor who doesn't have that in their contract, now you're, now you could be in violation. You could be subject to disciplinary action. So you, you know, you have to make sure you know when a contract is needed, a written contract. Although some, in most states, oral contracts are allowed, depending on the type of work. Um, knowing when it's when it's needed to be written and what has to be included on that contract is definitely important. Yeah, and I'll say even if orally contracts are allowed in the state you're in, I mean, here's the reality. I mean, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of projects, a lot of discussions, changes are happening. Is you know, on these jobs, it's very complex. And it's really easy. We found that the more dialed in we are in regard to scope, right? The more details we have for our trade partners they're bidding and we and we really diagnose the scope. You know, one of the things we've done, especially over the years, is when we you know, sending out bid docs that you go through and you 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 write down all the scopes. So they was working apples to apples. And what ends up happening is it just we found that it's less um opportunity for error, right? We send that scope to the client, the trade partner has it, we have it. So they was on the same page. So that way, if someone says, oh, I didn't have this in my bid or, you know, I'm missing this, at least we have something there. So as much as we trust one another, look, we forget things, conversations happen, we, we interpret it differently, and it happens way too often. Definitely. And having them submit in, if you are having multiple subs bid on a project, having them submit in shop drawings with specific, what are they including? What gauge metal are they using? How are they, you know, terminating this penetration point? Um, you know, what specific materials are they using? Because then you can also 
narrow down if they're just trying to submit the cheap bid because they're only using one layer of something or using a cheaper metal uh, versus using what you really want it to be spec to. Um, and having those details in the bid docs is huge too because then you say, well, we need 26 gauge aluminum here, whatever. I love that you share that, Rachel, because this is something I think as you, you know, as you've been in business for a long time and we've become more experienced, you know, I, I look back at our career and um, especially as a company and the mistakes we've made. And, and it could be something as easy as a threshold. We had uh, experience with a client where, um, you know, they had selected a threshold for the multi-slider, you know, fast forward through construction. We installed it as directed, as selected, and the client didn't like it. And there are a few reasons why they didn't like it. And you know, the comment the client made is like, hey, you should have known to explain this more in detail how this would look. And I'm like, well, it's really tough as a builder to really anticipate and forecast like every, there, there's a million things going in, every little thing that's going to trip up the client. But I will say moving forward, I mean, this is something that we're going to address on every project. And you think about like a disclaimer that, hey, if you want this certain threshold, you need to sign the disclaimer because it's going to protrude. It's going to be above the finished floor instead of level and flush. And here's why. And so it's these little things you refine that. And I've noticed that, especially as you're working with natural stone, that the client may see a sample, maybe one by, you know, 12 inch by 12 inch, and maybe 24 inch by 24 inch. But by the time you receive 5,000 square feet of product, depending on where it's cut in the mountain, it could be different. And so dye lots change, you know, blends change. And so those disclaimers are really important when we work with natural products. And, you know, all of us become more refined as we've made these mistakes. And now it's just more informative for the client you know, so that we're communicating better, you know, throughout the process. Yeah, and going off of that, actually, not just showing like this, not talking about just the size, but a lot, especially with the marble, some people will complain about the texture of it, having too many holes or too many variations, which is, they have to understand that's a natural occurrence in natural stone, in marble, in travertine, in whatever, you know, specific finish they may have. Even pavers will sometimes have some of those variations. And so a homeowner may think there's a defect when in fact that is exactly the way that it was intended. And they just they just don't know what that finished product's going to look like, you know? Yeah. I love that you share that because that's something we deal with regularly. I can assure you, especially with the homes that we do. And and one thing I've seen too, that's, you know, really important. And you said this earlier, Rachel, is when, whether it be the type of metal, the type of aluminum, you know, the products that the client we found very successful, especially with the cabinet color, right? If we have a custom finish, then we'll take the sample that's approved and cut in three pieces, right? We have sometimes four pieces because we'll have one for us as the builder, one for the client, one for the cabinet company, possibly one for the designer too. So four parties have a piece here that we can use as our template. Um, and, and one thing that we have to do in our communities, our HOA, the homeowners organization, uh, we have to do mock-ups. So for example, with exterior finishes, we have to build an actual temporary wall that has the stucco finish, that has the brick, the stone, the roof tile, right? The paint color that's integrated into the color of the stucco. So all these things are installed and that stays on site full time. So that come end of the project, client can inspect it. The HOA can ins inspect it and make sure that yes, we installed what we originally planned to do. That's it's kind of a good CYA, actually, yeah. having those job site mock-ups available um, because then you can just direct a homeowner, this is what it's going to look like. So go take a look at those finishes. Let me know if that's what you want. You have these three colors to choose from, yeah. you know? <laughs> so. and, and one thing I'll say, don't throw it away too early because it's funny. We actually had the mock-up done. It was signed off by the HOA on another project. Um, 
you know, the color was approved, everything was exactly per the spec. You know, you fast forward 30 days, and then when you paint, you know, the fascia, the color, the roof tiles installed, the way the light and the sunlight reflects, it just looked different. It looked more yellow. And the client's like, hey, this looks way different. And the original mock-up, we had thrown away because we're making room for landscaping and the pool. And so one thing we realized too, hey, we're just going to wait till the very end because we ended up taking care of it for the client. But at the same time, there was no basis there. Even though it had been done and signed off at the time, you know, things change as other finishes go on and how that light reflects. And so um, as we said early on, right, there's a lot of risk for us as the builder. And that's where we need Rachel. Now we're super excited to welcome one of our new sponsors to the podcast, Pella Windows. And this is even more exciting because we use Pella in so many of our projects, nearly all of them. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their they're company culture, their integrity, their honesty you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. And now let's get back into the episode. When you're thinking about starting a business, as you work with companies starting businesses, and we talked about a lot of the risk and you know, what, where else should a, a contractor focus you know, when they're starting their business? There's a lot of things to consider. Like when they're first starting out, if they haven't already set up a business, there's a lot of things that they are going to need to know uh, to kind of figure out before they just jump into it. You know, what type of work they've been doing, what their experience is in, what type of work they want to do. Um, because it really depends on how their experience is and specific types of structural work for what type of license they may qualify for. Just because they want to, you know, get a roofing license, if they've never laid roofs, they may not go get the license because they won't have the experience. But, um, and then also taking a look at, you know, your personal and if you already have a business set up, your business financial statements, what situation you may be in, whether you, if you have a business set up, you know, what does your, your bottom line look like? What does your, what are your financials like? Um, you know, we, we've, Actually, a lot, of, a lot of guys ask us this, how, how, where do I start? Where do I get started in this business? I don't, you know, I want to become a contractor. I'm working for a guy. I'm sick of working for the man. I want to go <laughs> get my own license, you know? So we, we, we just actually, we've been working on creating a manual for that. So how to simplify the whole process, explains to people where to start. Uh, basically just a contractor startup toolkit manual how to start, manage, and scale your construction or trades business. So it takes you through how to set up your business uh, the, from your ideas, your, your trade names, you know, the testing and the licensing process, um, all the way through how to manage and, and expand your business. You know, if you want to go, 
you want to specialize in a niche market, if you want to be general and just do all residential, if you just want to do one specific, you know, subtrade like cabinet installation. So, you know, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different facets. One license, you can do a lot of things, but just because you have that license doesn't mean you're going to be everyone's everything. You know, you, you may, it may be better for you to specialize and choose a field that you can niche into because then you can be the best at that niche instead of being okay on everything. You know, just being mediocre at a, a lot of things versus being, you know, the craftsman in a specific subtrade. So I'm glad you share that because the reality is in every state's different on their classification of licensing, right? And for us, even though we may have in Arizona what's called a B1 license, you know, we're able to do government work or commercial residential. That may be the case, but we can't self-perform certain aspects, right? Certain life safety. I mean, there's classification of codes and scope of work that I can't self-perform unless I'm qualified, go through the testing and get license for that. And then, yeah, if you're to look up the ROC, the registrar website, the government website, you can see all the classifications that I've been approved for as a qualifying party. Um, And so I, I would imagine there's a lot of education you have to give the contractors to understand that aspect to make sure that they're working within their scope of work that they've been legally approved to do so. Right. And knowing what the scope of work is, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to track down where all those license scopes are, you know, what, what specific um, sub classifications require that, you know. Yeah. And I'll give a good example to that because I, again, not throwing anyone on a bus, but I know as a vendor in town that, uh, you know, for their classification, they're in the masonry scope. And so, you know, when they're doing pavers, you know, next to your brickwork and masonry work, they're licensed to do that, but like vertical stone in like the interior of a house, you know, that, that, that they're not approved for, but they do work, they bid it. And fortunately I have a very good, and I think this is really key. I have a very good, um, legal person on my side that anytime we're going to contract or bid a new, you know, we have a prequal kit that we send out to, you know, potential, um, trade partners. And in that, you know, they, they list the scopes of work that they'll perform and, um, my legal guy goes through and he checks their licensing and ROC and says, Hey Brad, they can do X, Y, and X, Y, and Z, but they can't do a that they're bidding because they're not licensed for it. And that's where we have to be careful as a general contractor as well to, as well to make sure who we're hiring. Definitely. You know, it's interesting you say that though, because in some States, I don't know if it's the case in Arizona, some States allow you to contract for work or for scopes of work that you're not necessarily licensed to do as long as you subcontract it to the respective party. So even if there are multiple assets or aspects of a, of a job that fall under say an engineering classification or roofing classification, because you have the majority of the work you can contract for it and just sub it out to those, those respective trades. I don't know if that's the case in, in Arizona or if, if you have to subcontract each thing individually, they allow you to act as a prime contractor where the majority of the work is within yeah. your scope. Yeah. So we can, we, we act as the primary contractor, but then, you know, if I want to do electrical, for example, like I can't go install or have my super, I have to subcontract a lot, you know, electrical company. And so, um, and this is another important point. I mean, when you start thinking about development, right? So What's unique about Arizona is like a homeowner, if you own your house, Rachel, and it's your own house, you can contract, you know, those to work on your house. You can contract your own electrician, your own plumber to work under you as a homeowner. But if you're a developer, let's say you own like three spec houses and you're an investor, you can't, you can't, you know, as, as a spec, you know, investor, you can't hire an electrician to work all three of your specs 
you know, because at that point you have to be a licensed contractor. So it's only if it's your own home, can you contract without being the prime contractor or having a license, you know, as the GC. Interesting. And so that's where it's important too, that we educate the public that, you know, I know that, you know, there's designers that don't have their license that are hiring Mm -hmm. subcontractors. And that's where it gets really messy because for the client to not understand, hey, my designer or my architect who's hiring subs to do my remodel, legally, they're not able to. So there's no recourse for them at the end of the day, right? And that's where it's really important that all of us are educated, not only the public, but ourselves to understand how our business operates. And this is really what comes down. So I, I know you mentioned that you have a manual, right? So for me, I'm thinking, where was Rachel nine years ago when I started my company? Like, where do I get this resource? And so how do people get the manual? How do they get that information? How is it cultivated per state that everyone operates in? So we, it's basically a national manual that is, is for most of, of how it is operated within most states. But we also have specific chapter on licensing. So we go through each state. We get into detail on what specific requirements are for that, that individual state's requirements for licenses. Uh, we also we offer, we have it available on our website. And um, you can download that as a PDF version. Uh, we've also turned it into learning modules. So that way you can, if you want to learn about construction contracts, for example, how to, what clauses you need in your contract, how to protect yourself and cover yourself. We have a learning module just on that. If you want to learn about lien laws, how liens are the typical lien law, the filing procedures, who has to file liens, what your requirements are for that. Um, you know, we have a, a, a module for that. And we actually created, I don't know, I don't think I told you, but we created a, an exclusive coupon code just for your listeners. Um, so we have a 10% off uh, coupon code for everyone. That is AFT-10. So for any of our courses or services on our site, you can check that out and get 10% off. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to put that in the show notes because I know... Um there's a lot of contractors always asking, well, what do I do? What are next steps? In fact, I have an employee right now that's going to go off on his own. Um, that's been working to that. That was always his goal, you know, to, to start his own remodeling company. And, you know, he's always asking where he started and it's so complex. And that's where, you know, I look back that if I had a resource such as you, Rachel, where I could go on to your website, you know, and understand how do I set up a contract, right? What clauses do I need to have? What protection, you know, thinking about the lien and licensing. I mean, these are expensive lessons uh, if you don't have the right um, person on the other side to consult with, you know, right, that's going to help you out and walk you through this, uh, it can be a very expensive learning opportunity. Definitely. As they say, you know, um, you, you're a contractor, you have tools in your toolbox, whether they're physical tools or virtual tools, business tools. Um, these are just things to add to your toolbox that can help you just jumpstart it that much more. I love that. So, to change this a little bit, you know, what's interesting is I know a lot of contractors struggle with understanding the bond, right? What's a construction bond? And and even clients have a hard time understanding. So explain a little bit about what is a construction bond. So there's different types of construction bonds. When you say construction bond, it could mean one thing to one person where it would mean something else to another. Um, there's licensing bonds where when you go to get your license, you may have to obtain a bond to make sure that if you know, something happens, they, the county can reimburse someone to, uh, for a violation of, of, let's say, a regulation, for example. There's also payment bonds to make sure that all of your subcontractors are paid on the job. There's performance bonds 
and and payment and performance bonds. These these would be like required for your your government project, your public uh, funded project. They would require your payment and performance bonds. But performance bond makes sure that someone's going to complete that job, whether it's you, the bonded contractor, or someone else that the surety company then designates to finish that project out. So it's just an, a double double assurance for the the owner of the project or the public to be protected for performance bond. Then there's um, there's maintenance bonds. There's you know there's conditional payment bonds. You can you can have lien bonds to get uh, someone who's maybe you know if the owner hasn't paid something and you want to close out a lien. You can get a lien bond to bond around a lien being filed. Um, there's supplier bonds to make sure that all the suppliers are paid. So there's a lot of different types of bonds in the construction industry that, you know, contractors, most of them don't, you know, they say licensed, bonded, and insured, but do they really know what the bond means? Like what bond are we talking about, you know? Yeah, it's funny you say that because you always see licensed, bonded, insured, but do they understand what, what the bond is or what it's for or when it's required? You know, for those working in residential, they may not see it as often as they will in commercial, especially if you're doing government work, right? They're going to require bonds. If you're doing a school or government work, you know, they're going to have you put up a, a payment bond, a performance mm -hmm. bond, both. I will say that we're doing a residential project um, <clears throat> and it's it's a little unique. The uh, it, It's an amazing custom home. It's on a hillside. It's, you know, 14 acres of private hillside. But what's unique is that the, you know, their property is attached to an existing community. So there's a gated community. So you have to drive through the community to the end of the cul-de-sac and that's where you now have access to go up the hillside. Well, the HOA, you know, they could say, okay, well you may be licensed and insured, Brad, but you're going to be bringing in, you know, 50 concrete trucks through our neighborhood. You know, you're going to be doing work, you know, on our streets and our pavement. And so we were required to put up a $250,000 bond, right? A, a performance bond to work in this community. And really at the end of the day, it gives the HOA assurance that, hey, if we damage a curb, damage the street, maybe even damage our residential vehicles as we're going in and out access, right? That we're going to step behind and pay for that or, you know, being bonded that our bonding company will, which then if I don't step up to play my bonding company does, that's going to penalize me for future bonds, right? Oh yeah. That would, that would jack your rates up for a little, <laughs> a little while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bonds so, are expensive enough. <laughs> they are expensive. And so part of that bonding, uh, it's really important to understand, you know, what, so, so where do, if, if I had to get a bond and let's say I had no experience, Rachel, where do I go to get bonded, whether it be a performance bond or a payment bond? So typically this is your insurance, insurance agent's wheelhouse. They, they have the contacts with the surety companies. They have contacts with bonding companies or, or general agents that will be dealing with bonds. They'll usually deal with the bonding company. So there are some companies that just specialize in bonds you know, construction bonds and other types of bonds. But typically your insurance agent, you would just contact your local agent, whoever does your general liability or your commercial auto insurance would uh, be able to get you sourced for those things. Uh, and being a new contractor, you may be paying a little bit of a premium price, but at least once you get bonded, that's the most generally you're going to pay uh, unless you just, you do some no-no stuff and they have to take over. But uh, you, you'll see experience modification factors and when they say that that's you have more experience in the field you've completed more projects we trust you a little bit more we'll give you more of a discount off your bond the next time so when you go to renew those things they tend to get a little bit cheaper unless you um you know failed end up, 
Yeah, not completing a project. Yeah, I love these shadow ratio because because one thing that's key too for people to understand is that a lot of times, uh, especially as a new company, if you don't have a track record or you haven't been in business maybe a year and you don't have financials and you're working through, I mean, they could ask for a personal guarantee too, where they're saying, okay, Rachel, if I'm going to bond you and your company, you know, first of all, you know, the rate may be a little bit higher, the cost may be higher, but in addition, you're going to have to give a personal guarantee, which then changes it as well. And so it's really important, you know, as a contractor, to understand, well, what am I signing when I'm signing a personal guarantee? What's my liability personally, you know, because I may have to do that at any rate just to get the bond to get the project. Yeah. And, and it's the difference between getting the project and not getting the project sometimes. If you don't have the bond or the bond's too much and you can't afford it, you don't have the capital to put it out. Um, all the more reason to plan ahead and have your financials in place and have your, you know, get those things in place personally so that you have the credit to be able to back your business to get those bonds later on down the line. So outside of bonding, how does a contractor know if they're properly insured? They got to look at their exclusions. They have to look at their policy, read the policy documents, reads, uh, read what's covered and what's excluded um, and what you have for endorsements. When you look at your policy coverage, you really need to know what's covered. If you have an admitted carrier, generally most items will be included. Uh, you'll have a lot of standard endorsements included in your packages, but if it ends up being a surplus lines carrier, uh, maybe someone through Lloyd's of London or some other general agent that has a surplus lines type of a policy, there's usually more exclusions with that. So you really need to keep an eye on the exclusions. It's not what's covered, it's what's not covered. So read those things that fine print. Um, you you got to make sure you have your uh, your general liability coverage. You definitely need to make sure you have your commercial auto policy coverage. You have to have workers comp coverage. And then a lot of times bigger contractors will also get excess liability or umbrella liability policies to cover over top of everything in case you exceed policy limits on something or you have two or three lawsuits in a, in a policy period and it's now in excess that kicks in and that covers you so it doesn't come after you personally. So, Yeah, I love that you share that because this has been, I feel for me, it's been the most complex, you know, that over time because it's one thing to understand our exposure or my exposure as a business owner, you know, from general liability to auto, commercial auto, workman's comp, you know, bodily injury, all these different things that aspect the job. But where it becomes really tricky is making sure that the trade partners I'm hiring that they have the proper insurance too, that I'm auditing their policy, getting all their documents and understanding what they're excluding, what they're including, understanding their limits, right? You know, when when does it cap for them? We're now, I, you know, for something that they're causing that now I'm taking the bulk of it. And that's where I feel that most contractors, especially in all the seminars, seminars I've sat through, that we just aren't looking enough at those that we're hiring, performing the work to making sure that they're properly insured. Yeah, as contractors, we have the duty uh, as the prime contractor to make sure that our subs and everyone underneath of us are operating to our standards and also to make sure that they have the insurance limits that will cover us. So if their insurance limits are only 300000 and and ours are 1 million or 2 million and they mess up the stucco and now you have a $500,000 lawsuit on your hands, their policy limits are going to pay out and then the contractor's looking to you to pay. They're coming after you to recover as the contractor. Uh, so your homeowners, you know, it's a flow down <laughs> and flow back up. It it, ro- it goes both ways. You as the contractor have to supervise your subs, but their insurance will look to your insurance to recover. 
if you get sued, you're going to look to their insurance to recover. So you want to make sure that their insurance has enough that they're going to cover everything and they don't have exclusions for the type of work they're doing. Like if they're doing stucco installation and they have a specific exclusion on exterior finishing or exterior coverings and they do stucco, they're not going to cover that policy. It's basically like they don't even have a policy. Right. So yours will kick in. It's so true. Um, it's, it's, that's how it goes that, I mean, when, when, when there's a defects case, you, you, one person gets sued, the GC, and then who does he sue? He subrogates and he third party sues all of the subs and then their insurance companies. So it's just, it's a flow down, you know, trickle down effect when it comes to that. I love that you share that because that understand the subrogation is important, but when you think about, and I've seen that before that in some of these trade partners that have insurance, and as you mentioned, a good example, not that this happened with my stucco guy, but what you're saying is that the stucco company is performing next year finish, yet they're excluding any liability for next year finish. So really, you're hiring someone that if there is a defect, they're out. They're, I mean, essentially, they have no liability. Now, you as a general contractor do, and that's why it's really important that it's not just, hey, ch- you know, these handshake, going back to the importance of a contract, is that not only is the contract super important because it protects not only the trade partner, but us as well as we're working through this and understand the correct scope and application. But when it comes to defects too, that we're understanding that the insurance now is going to back the work that both of us are doing. Definitely. And making sure that you, know, that you have up-to-date certificates of insurance, mm-hmm. that you don't have an old one, um, that you're named as a certificate holder. And, yeah. and most Additional of our- Additional insured. Ad- I was going to say, most of our policies require us to make them list us as additional insurers so that they are we are insured on their policy as much as the liability that we're taking by hiring them. <laughs> yeah, I love that because that's something as well that you know most of uh when I'm working for, you know, clients or developers, I mean they'll ask to be additional insured. I mean we'll do the same for our trade partners because then for sure with the certificates of insurance, understand that the policy's not lapsing, getting those updated certificates. And that's where it's really important when you start thinking about all the complexities of business, there has to be some sort of organization internally that you have someone assigned to this that does. Because when you're doing 10 projects a year and you have 50 people on each job, I mean, you could have 500 companies easily doing work, right? Um, you know, 50, whatever it may be. And you have to track to make sure, hey, they're good today. You know, we're in November and their policy is good, but it expires January you know, 15th. So we better make sure January, you know, that week that we're getting a new updated certificate of insurance to make sure that they're they're good to go for the following year. You know, even further than that, I always check their insurance before I pay them. <laughs> yeah, that's really smart. So it's one of the because, checklist items. So yes, as as a check before I issue the, you know, before we sign off on on the lien paperwork and we send the, you know, we get all of that, we get our lien paperwork, we get, you know, the check and we check on their insurance. We ver- verify it with the agent or request another certificate of insurance to make sure that it's still valid because just because it says it's good for six months doesn't mean that they didn't just get it and then cancel their policy. Um, we've seen it happen. Uh, so it's definitely something to consider because you just never know. And and before the end of the project, making sure that it's that their insurance is still in place too. I actually love that checklist item because typically when you give them a check, at least for us, you know, they're providing a lien release that they're signing the re- re- lien release as we hand them the check, right? There's that um, that crossover there, but yeah, never thought about, Hey, make sure we have an updated, updated certificate. You know, we work with good vendors, but still, as you mentioned, there's still some where you just never know. And you know, what better way to, um, to hold their feet to the fire than when you're paying them. Right. For sure. Definitely. It's the, it's the surefire way to get it <laughs> turned around quickly. 
Absolutely. So what about builder's risk? I mean, do you recommend that GCs, whether they're doing a remodel or new build, that they always are adamant that the owner get a builder's risk policy? Definitely for sure, because you have no idea what could happen to your stuff, your materials, your job site that's unsecured. You have no idea what could happen. Vandalism. I can't tell you how many how many job sites we go by where things get, you know, walk off the job site overnight or kids decide to vandalize things or God forbid the homeowner go on the project and they're the one that wants to watch the project of the project, watch the progress of the project and goes on site and, you know, trips on something, steps on a nail, whatever. It's still an issue, still some sort of a coverage and, and a liability that you definitely need to, to make sure that you're covering. And it's not even expensive when you consider the amount of coverage for how long a project could go on. I mean, you could have a, cons- a custom build take, you know, six months, a year, year and a half, depending on materials. So to have that builder's risk coverage in place for the duration of the project, not to mention most lenders are going to require it anyway. So just making sure that you have that as well is always a good idea for you I'm, and the homeowner. Protects yeah. both, and po- protects everyone. Yeah, and that's something that we've especially, I mean, we've always done it, but I mean, this is something we're having the conversation early on about the builder's risk and we'll assist our clients to get quotes too, because that's a policy that they're um, taking on. And as you mentioned, I mean, whether it be injury or vandalism or theft, you know, these things happen or let's say by accident, I mean, the house could burn down and burn the neighbor's house down. I mean, whatever. I mean, all this stuff, you know, is protecting the client and us, you know, from potential issues that may come. And again, that's something that's a lot less expensive if they're contracting it before the project starts, because sometimes you can't even get a builder's risk once you start construction and sometimes they can, but it's very expensive. And so, uh, you know, that's something that most contractors need to understand. And yeah, I, I think what's interesting with you, Rachel, that I've found is, I mean, not only do you, are you super savvy in regard to business, you know, and, and all this, um, assistance you get us contractors, but you're also running your own company, aren't you in Florida? Yes, myself and some business partners, we have a custom residential design build construction business. So we do some high-end custom projects. Uh, Basically, we work with them and the architects and design it the way they want. So with that, there's a lot of details and a lot of specifications that we have to look at all the time and, um, you know, sourcing materials. But we give allowances. Uh, just to make sure that we're not running into cost issues, uh, budget issues, especially with these supply increases um, just through the through the moon right it's now. Crazy. You have yeah. no idea. You can't secure how long that price will last for. So we've been getting by with um, just allocated allowances. You know, you you're you're designing this the way you want it. So if you want travertine marble in the backyard, it's a change order. You know. Um, yeah. Here's fifteen thousand for decking. If you if it's thirty, then there's a fifteen thousand dollar change order. You know, so it, that that helps to absorb and and sort of protect ourselves from those rising material costs. Um, you know, we have those things in place, but it's it's definitely we we've had to switch and change quick to, to doing that and and being resilient to being able to, you know, jump and change with just ever-changing market conditions and supply and demand logistic issues. So. <laughs> oh, I feel for you. It's so hard right now. But what's interesting, you know, for you being design build, so are you controlling, you know, the, the architecture, the design process, as well as the build all the way through? I work with an architect and a draftsperson, and we design it. Um, so we take basically, we'll look at some floor plans, 
to get an idea and then modify it from there. You know, what do they want in here? How 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 do they want the ceilings? What do they want the outside to look like? We just go with aesthetics and and go through finishes and I help them pick out materials and um it, so it's a whole thing. Uh, I have a source of you know material houses that know how we work, so they mm -hmm. they work with us and they you know give them the the rundown and the models of everything so they can pick and choose, and then we just go from there. But the architects dealing with them and. Oh, we got to change this. Okay, now she wants three feet more in the bathroom. Okay, now we got to move this this wall. We need a bigger pantry, and we need to add some electrical load here because we're going to do a theater. You know, so it's a, it's it's a little different. It's more, I think, than what most contractors do because not everybody does the design, build, and works with the architect, but a lot do. So it, it definitely helps with teaching contractors because I work with plans, I work with architects, I work with a lot of those things, so I can help explain those things to everyone else. So. So as busy as you are running your own company, Design Build, there in Florida, and then what gave you the, uh, I, I shouldn't say the energy, but at least the desire to start the contractor training center, right? I mean, there's just so much to that to have. I, I understand you know the business very well, so that's very helpful, you know, as a consultant, but you know, it's such a different business model and there's so much to it. So the partners, the directors of Contractor Training Center uh, have had, they've been running this for about six years. And... They found me and I was already working with another construction uh, training company and they just said, hey, we want, we want you to come on board, come work with us, help us take this thing nationwide. And I was like, I love it. I love, I love training. I love educating and furthering and expanding people's um, repertoires of their knowledge. And I feel like it's, we, we provide a service to the industry. We provide things that people may not be able to find other elsewhere. You know, construction specific education that helps people expand their business and giving them pathways to attain a license is, you know, you teach a man to fish. You give a man to fish, he only eats a day. You teach a man to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. So I love that idea and I love helping uh, people kind of achieve their dreams. So it was just the perfect, the perfect storm of amazingness and I had to jump on board. So, so what are some of the aspects when you think about the contractor training center? You know, if I'm new, if I'm just starting my company, Brad Levitt today, you know, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that they could go on and they could purchase the manual, right? They could understand, you know, some, some language to set up their contracts. I mean, is, is this a, a, a course, you know, a continual online education? Is it, um, this helps me prepare for the licensing exam in my state? I mean, what are all the different features and functions through the website, through the company? So the Contractor Startup Toolkit is a manual that helps you just, okay, you, you don't know where to start, here's where you start. So you get that manual. And then from there, you decide what state that you would need to get licensed in. And we offer exam prep courses and book packages for those states. We also have licensing specialists that help you understand what the requirements are for each state. So they specialized in this state requires this. You have to have this for experience. Your financials have to look like this. Um, you have to take your exam first. Uh, you have to apply for the exam first. Some states require you to apply and prove your experience first. Some, some just let you go take the test first and then get the license. So we have licensing specialists that help with that. And then once you have your license, we're, we have professional development courses to help you keep your license. Some states require you to take continuing education to keep your licenses every two years or every three years, depending on your renewal. Others don't have any requirements for CE, but it's always 
a good idea to keep expanding your knowledge base. So we have instruction specific professional development hours to help people sort of expand their tool, their their business Arsenal. toolkit. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's super valuable because I look. I mean, just in Arizona, for example, if you're to go get licensed, you know, I know for me, you know, the state's going to require for me to get the license. I have it as a, you know, B one contractor. I had to show that I had you know, five years experience doing the size of projects that I'm doing. And the, you know, fortunately I had that, but again, you know, there's a lot of references you have, you know, from clients and trade partners and suppliers, right. That all have to back say, yeah, I worked with Brad, you know, in this role, you know, as well as, you know, the testing, preparing for the licensing. And so all this is something that you'll help us with Rachel to get through, get all the references and make sure that we're qualified to get the license we're applying for. Yes, and some states require credit reports and fingerprints. Um, then, you know, some have multiple exams. You may have a business and finance exam. You may have a technical exam or a two-part technical exam. And then in some states, they even have you specialize within that. So um, our licensing specialists just, just really tailor it to you and help you navigate the whole process. There's a lot of red tape. That's involved. There, way too much red tape. And I love the continuing education, the CE. I mean, it's so valuable because that's something that all of us, I mean, the reality is the industry changes all the time. There's new technology, new information, uh, risk that we're dealing with the changes, right? And so understanding, you know, OSHA and, you know, all the CE, I mean, that's really valuable, you know, to have someone provide that service as well. Definitely. Well, we love doing it and we, we're always rolling new things out. So keep, uh, keep checking out the site, our website, contractortrainingcenter.com, to see all of our new course offerings and keep up with our new course launches. Well, to close here, you know, I've been, you've been very gracious with your time, Rachel. So thank you for that. And, you know, as we close here, what's the best advice you've been given? I would say the best advice that I have been given is choose your clients wisely. <laughs> <That's>... Because... <laughs> Some know when to fire a client. Sometimes you may need to fire a client if if it seems like it's going to be a headache or you have a nightmare contract, uh, you know, a nightmare homeowner that is nitpicking every little thing that is just scrutinizing every detail. Maybe it may be a blessing in disguise. Sometimes you, you, it's easier and less headache and frustration in the long run to sometimes be able to just say, "I'm just." I'm going to walk away from this one um, and let someone else, let it be someone else's headache. But um, I would say that's probably the best advice. I think I've dodged a couple bullets that way. Uh, but I think that the ability of someone to be resilient is also key. So always be learning is the other thing that I would say is the best advice. Just always be learning, always be conscious and be open to change because sometimes things will change around you if you don't change. Well, I love that. I mean, I, I we spent a lot of time on this podcast trying to understand your ideal client, right? How to vet your client. I mean, it's so important and understand how to be resilient, especially in construction. I mean, it's it's a very demanding industry. It's a very complicated industry and it's um, it can be tough. It's very challenging at times. So, you know, for you, Rachel, what's upcoming and exciting? Upcoming and exciting. We are getting ready to launch a national electrical program. So we are rolling out electrical courses in... I think 15 states. It's going to be very exciting. So um, I've been wrapping my head around electrical lately, which is super fun. Um, it's exciting. So 
other than that, just building more houses, trying to keep up and keep busy and continue to evolve with everything and stay ahead of the market. Which is amazing. Well, in closing here, where can our listeners find you? And again, you know, that website to sign up, you know, for the Contractor Training Center. Yes, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. And our website is contractortrainingcenter.com. And we do have a coupon code for your listeners, AFT-15. It's 15% off. Oh, wow. So it just went up if they finished the episode. Just went up up 5%, yes. (laughs) Well, that's amazing, Rachel. I can't thank you enough for making time and sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I do appreciate it. And it was great working with you today. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.